just thinking about the, the connection, uh, uh, even as uh, our beloved Nelson Mandela lies in hospital, uh, because I think he did that, and he's doing that. Uh, so thank you very much for the beautiful, beautiful uh, music that you have given us, and I hope you won't refuse when we call you again to sing. Professor Daniel van Lille, Executive Dean of uh, the Faculty of Management, Professor Theo Felsman, Head of Department, Professor Wilfred Okpere, the person whose inaugural has convened us here today, 
I note in our midst several other important visitors. I was made to understand that my good friend Professor Larry Obi, DVC Academic Affairs from the University of Portia is here. Is he here? Hey, my friend, welcome. It's good to see you. I also want to acknowledge uh, in our midst um, Professor Gert Ruot, uh, Dean of Research in the Faculty of Management, uh, Professor Jane Sport, uh, Dean of Teaching and Learning, uh, Dr. Godley Otto and his wife. They come all the way from the University of uh, Port Harcourt in Nigeria. Welcome. I want to welcome Professor Werner Havenka from the Northwest University. Professor Jan Fisahi also from the Northwest University. Uh, Mr. Marius Meyer and his wife, who is the CEO of the South African Board of People Practices. Uh, Mr. Christopher Emefieme, who is uh, also in our midst. From the Ukpere family, I would like to acknowledge the presence of Mrs. Celestine Ukpere, uh, wife of uh, uh, Professor Wilfred's late uh, brother and uh, her late uh, daughter. Um, Mrs. Maria Ukpere, also who should be in our midst. And then, uh, closer to home, Mrs. Gladys Ukpere, the wife of Professor Wilfred Ukpere, uh, Miss Helen Ukpere, the daughter, as well as the three sons, uh, Wilfred, William, and Wintley. Uh, it's a family where the men dominate, very <laughs> patriarchal family. Um, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tiniko Maluleke. I am the DVC Internationalization, Advancement and Student Affairs at the University of Johannesburg. It is my singular pleasure to welcome you to UJ, an international university of choice anchored in Africa, dynamically shaping the future. You will agree with me that in the life of a scholar or an academic, few occasions are as significant as the occasion of professorial inauguration. Inasmuch as it is often said colloquially that life begins at 40, for scholars and academics one could say life begins at the moment when one becomes a professor. It is the moment when one's peers and one's colleagues acknowledge one's scholarly maturity, a moment when peers agree that one has something original, something scholarly to profess, a moment when one's university is willing to lend one the unique and special title of professor although I see that nowadays there are DJs who call themselves professors. <laughs> the University of Johannesburg, recognizing the production of knowledge as its ultimate contribution to society, its ultimate value add, 
is very proud to unveil today its newest professor, that being none other than Professor Wilfred Ukpere. And it is now my pleasure to request the Executive Dean of the Faculty of Management to step forward to introduce Pro Professor Wilfred Ukpere to us before he addresses us. Professor Van Lille. Professor Maruleke, honored guests, it's wonderful to be here this evening. And it really takes me back to two of the most wonderful moments in my life. Whenever there was a graduation, when I was an undergrad, I always looked at the doctoral candidates entering the hall. And I always wondered, what is this about and how does it feel? And that day when I wore that particular gown, it felt as though I've conquered the world. And then afterwards, when my academic career started, I realized, well, shucks, in this place, everybody's got a doctorate. There's nothing funny about it. And then the real hard work started. And then eventually I, I said, now, how can you progress? And this is what you need to do to become a professor one day. And I thought, oh, my goodness. This will take me probably 2,600 years, but nonetheless, let's give it a try. And then eventually that evening when I gave my inaugural address, it was one of the highlights. And I was wonderful because my family was also there. And it's, it's a, so, Wilfred, I think the point is, in mind, in heart, and in spirit, we are with you and your loved ones tonight to celebrate this remarkable achievement and to witness this great step in your career journey. It's wonderful to have all of you tonight with us. And thank you for all our guests and our peers and our colleagues who are visiting tonight and are sharing the moment with us. Dear colleagues, it gives me an absolute, me an absolute pleasure to introduce to you a remarkable scholar somebody who gives a lot of love to the world and aspires to make it a better place, uh, Professor Wilfred Isoma Ukpere. Now, Professor Wilfred Isoma Ukpere attended school in Nigeria before proceeding to India for his advanced studies. He obtained his Bachelor of Commerce and Masters of Commerce from Punjabi University in Pataila, India. He further obtained another Masters in Business Administration from Jiwaji University in Gwalior, India, and subsequently obtained his doctorate in Human Resources Management from the Cape Peninsula University of Technology in Cape Town. Wilfred has more than 14 years of cognitive industrial, academic and research experience. He has worked at the Radical Pharmaceutical Company in India, the Central Institute of Management in Ambala, the Central Bank of Nigeria in Abuja, and the Cape Peninsula University of Technology in Cape Town, where he lectured and served as Head of Department Entrepreneurship and Business Management. He demonstrates a keen sense of responsibility towards his students, and his contribution to the development of young academics through mentorship is well acknowledged and really appreciated. Wilfred is currently a professor in the Department of Industrial Psychology and People Management at the University of Johannesburg. He contributes a strong theoretical approach in his research, with most of his output centered on critiquing the impact of capitalism in the post-Cold War era, notably in the context of emerging economies. His referees consider him to be an established researcher in the field of people management and development, notably within the domain of globalization and its impact on human resources management. He has authored three books, two book chapters, 25 conference proceedings, and more than 100 articles in ISL, IBSS, and DOE-accredited journals. Now, for some of you, this may just sound like jargon, but in our 
life as academics. If you deliver about five credits per year as a professor, five to six, we consider this as great. Last year, Professor Ukpere contributed 18.33 credits to the faculty's output, and this is remarkable. And uh, with that, we will also later this year acknowledge our full professor as one of the top researchers in the faculty. Uh, Wilfred Perry is also an NRF-rated researcher. This means the National Research Foundation's uh, ratings, and he has received numerous research-related awards in recognition of his research contributions from the CPUT, UJ, the NRF, and the Yona College in the USA. Wilfred demonstrates an ability to secure vital, vital partnerships with local and international research collaborators, particularly in India and Northern Africa. He serves on the research committee of the Human Resource Research Initiative of the SA Board of People Practices. And Maurice, it's great to have you and the team here tonight. Um, he also acts as an external examiner for postgrads and as an external moderator for several universities. He's a visiting academic to several international institutions, such as Punjabi University in Patalia, India, Spiru Herat University in Romania, the University of Cologne in Germany, the University of Port Harcourt, the University of Benin, the University of Lagos, and Convent University in Ata. He served as a scientific reviewer for several academic journals and international conferences. He is an editorial advisory board member for several academic journals, including the International Journal of Social Economics, this is the Emerald Insight Journal, and the journal communication Kamla Raj. He is the chief editor of the Journal of Management and Technology, editor-in-chief of the African Journal of Business Management, and currently the co-editor of South Africa's Journal of Human Resources Management. He is married to Gladys, and it's so good to meet you tonight in the family, uh, who is a chief professional nurse and a midwife, and they have four children, Helen, Wilfred, Williams, and Whitney. And I must tell you guys, the first time that I met, met your dad, uh, we were speaking in his office, and we spoke about 15 minutes about his work and about him joining UJ, and for more than an hour about you guys. <laughs> so, Gladys, to you and the family, kids, thank you very much for supporting him through the years, and thank you for availing his time to us so that we can grow a new generation. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an absolute pleasure to introduce you to Wilfred Perry. Thank you so much, Professor Danny. And uh, I would also like to begin by thanking uh, our new DVC, uh, Professor Maduleke. You are welcome. And I'm privileged to have you as uh, the officiating VC tonight. And also, I would like to also thank uh, Professor Quenzi, uh, my very good friend, and uh, the most uh, stubborn and crazy professor in my department. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you and, uh, <laughs> for, going, for going along with me tonight. And uh, I would also like to thank uh, my head of department, uh, that is uh, Professor Theo Wetzman, uh, who has been so supportive as uh, my head, uh, and uh, all colleagues, friends that are gathered here tonight. I say thank you very much. I'm very, very happy. I'm pleased to have you here. 
because I know that you have so many other important things to be doing by this hour that you decided to boycott most of those activities to be here with me tonight. Thank you once more. Thank you very much. Uh, in terms of this inaugural address, I would like to uh, dedicate this inaugural address to uh, my, my dad, uh, that is my parents, that is Mr. and Mrs. J.N. Uh, J. Uh My dad uh, has been an inspirator in so many ways to me, and uh, I'm also dedicating this inaugural address to my senior brother, late senior brother, Mr. Matthew Ijama Ukbere, and the wife is here. He has been my mentor also uh, during my study days in India. I would also like to uh, dedicate this inaugural address to my loving wife, uh, Gladys, and my four children, uh, Helen, Wilfred, Williams, and Wintley. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, I, I will begin by saying that all activities under heaven are heavenly ordained. The present author standing before you is a fine product of a divine grace. Fulfillment in life is not being passive, and co but comes about when one contributes to making the world a better place, not by chance, but by hard effort through the special grace of God. Therefore, I dare say today that I am not standing here on my own accord, but through the mercy and love of my maker, who inspired me to pursue my dreams and also touch people's hearts to enable me to stand where I stand today. The inaugural lecture, although perceived and at times conceived as the peak of an academic career, is in fact the beginning, like Professor Malileke stated, the beginning of free academic endeavor, based on some medieval facts. Professora Inaugura, which is also referred to as Inceptio, is more than 800 years as a university tradition. It has been presented by different people or by different academics over the years in different formats, such as speeches, lectures, addresses, experimentation, and some kind of significant insights. Today, mine will take the form of a lecture, a speech, and, ad and an address. My lecture is based on a concept, strophilomena, which confronted me while pursuing my master's degree in India, and also stayed with me when I decided to embark on my doctoral studies in Cape Town. It is a phenomenon that has brought both exciting and depressing perspectives to my thoughts. I'm referring to a phenomenon that is pervasive, as well as confusing, polarizing, and sometimes destructive, namely globalization in pure capitalist form. You are most welcome on board. The collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989 and the fall of the famous Berlin Wall heralded a neoliberal economy system known as globalization, which was postulated to address the problem of humankind 
on a global scale. This development saw nations, particularly developing ones, rushing to infuse themselves into the capitalist global system, which was reflected by the opening of borders to the transnational juggernaut of capitalism. Indeed, Turner reports, the late 1990 and the first half of 2000 marked the apogee of a sort of market triumphalism, a confidence at least among Western elites that capitalism, and in particular, American free market capitalism was the universal answer to economic problems. This specific capitalism bears little resemblance to the earliest one, Hence, full-blown global capitalism appeared after the defeat of contending ideologies in Russia, Eastern Europe, and other parts of the world. Scler declares, by the early 1990s, ruling groups in all the countries of Eastern Europe had abandoned communism and were trying in a variety of ways to insert themselves into the capitalist global system. Thus, as previously predicted, capitalism broke all walls of resistance and penetrated societies and nations as never before imagined. Even nations such as India and China, which were one time sworn enemies of pure capitalist system, finally succumbed to the political ideology of capitalism. After years of trade restriction and protectionism, followed by a series of euphemistic economic policies, the Chinese government finally decided to liberalize and open up its borders to the transnational forces of capitalism. The same can be said of India, as Evans observes. By the 1990s, even an Indian government claiming economic nationalistic credentials had succumbed to the economic transnational practices of capitalist globalization and had opened up its economy. During the same period, a French, a French socialist government privatized more state assets in four years than any government had done previously in economic history. The successes that were achieved in the, then in the USA, Britain, and other nations that embrace the capitalist system and the weak performances by nations that adopted its alternative gave powerful credence to the notion that neoliberal capitalism was the best of all options. In other words, capitalism was highly acknowledged as the best and only option to propel any global economic agenda. Even the present author can still recall being cautioned a few years ago by a colleague, Professor Brown Rust, at the Cape Peninsula University of Technology, that his statement could be dangerous when he remarked, there could still be the possibility of a complementary relationship between capitalism and socialism. The silent moment of a particular system should not be construed as the end of that system Otherwise, a battle line could be drawn, and it may as well not be incongruous to assert that positive socialism locked at the corner, waiting to mark the circumstantial 
inexplicable fall of capitalism. In another peer-reviewed academic engagement, Professor Mwedu Sase seemed to concur with Professor Ross' reservation when he queried, would violent conflict, terrorism, and intensification of anti-globalization demonstration not be the natural fallout of the uneven or lopsided gain of capitalism rather than the revival of positive socialism as predicted in the study? Would the predatory resurgence of positive socialism and not another ideological confrontation between capitalism and socialism as claimed in the study? This is clearly an implausible assumption. Hence, the skepticism of these eminent scholars may not be incredible, since the obviation was high for capitalism as the only goals that lay the golden egg. Indeed, a victory, at least, for Reaganomics and Thatcherism, which gave birth to Tina. When I talk about Tina, I'm not referring to anybody called Tina here, or my sister Tina. It's just an acronym for there is no alternative. No alternative to capitalist global system. Therefore, almost in conformity with earlier predictions, other alternative economic configurations were irrevocably declared dead. Derindrov states, the point has to be made unequivocally that socialism is dead and that none of its variants can be revived for a world awakening from the double nightmare of sterilism and Bushevism. Giddens has said that the idea of burying socialism has become a reality. Slobert states, the Russian beer is dead and buried. Floundering in its wake is a confederation of state desperately trying to come to grip with a market economy. Two of the mourners at the funeral, Comrade Mars and Lily, were seen wearing expressions of astonishment and bitterness dissolution by the fading out of one of the world's primary ideology. In the United States and certain other capitalist nations, the triumph of capitalism was greatly celebrated, culminating in Francis Fakuyama's position that the triumph of capitalism over other alternative economic systems marked the end of history. However, Harvard professor Samuel Huntington believes that the scenario could best be captured by the clash of civilization. In his view, the future will be decided by, not by a confrontation between social theories and political orders, as in the days of the Cold War, but by conflict of religious and cultural origin between civilization. The above assertion could presumably be linked to the current resistance in many parts of the world as presently weakness in Iraq, Iran, North Korea, Afghanistan, and Somalia, although these were considered by the present author as pockets of resistance in the face of turbulent, triumphant capitalism. Hence, to a great extent, capitalism became so unchallenged, some sort of a demigod, implying that the world is left without alternative but to freely accept the total and final eclipse of other economic systems by American free market capitalism, which implies that those positive moral incentives of socialist systems, such as free education, minimum wage, 
employment creation, social welfare, and security, unemployment benefits, government housing construction, progressive taxation, old age allowances, to mention a few, become relics of a bygone era to be confined to the dustbin of history. Why profit becomes the icon of the modern economic world, leaving the quality of life and labor a casualty of global cultural competition. In this vein, Sasson observed that by the 1990s, it even proved too difficult to defend the gains thus far achieved by European socialism. The welfare state, full employment, and trade unions' rights. The first was in danger. The second had become a thing of the past, and the third were severely curtailed. Indeed, this was in part a reflection of the distinctiveness of, of capitalist globalization. Distinctiveness of globalization. Numerous authors have expressed their views about globalization. Some have dubbed it as global capitalism, while others have called it globalization of capitalism or capitalist globalization. Hall et al. in concordance with many others believe that our world is being remade. Mass production, the mass consumer, the big city, big brother state, the sprawling housing estate, and the nation states are in decline. Flexibility, diversity, differentiation, and mobility, communication, and decentralization, and internationalization are in the accidents. In the process, our own identities, our sense of self, our own subjectivity are being transformed. Before progressing, it will be necessary also to emphasize that views concerning globalization were quite polarizing and confusing from the onset. Some authors argue that globalization is merely capitalism. Why others believe that globalization is simply internationalization? However, there are others also who believe that it is merely a product of technological explosion. Another school of thought argue that it is a result of deterritorialization or supra-territorialization. This varied argument may not be far from the truth. Nevertheless, the present author believes that globalization is an effective synchronization and crystallization of these multifaceted but correlated variables. Therefore, to take one or two variables which are mentioned above as a basis for an analysis of globalization will certainly lead to a redundant concept of globalization and those vindicate skeptics' argument that there is nothing new about globalization. The perceived triumph of capitalism had triggered at will a massive internationalization process that activated a kind of technological explosion, which resulted in deterritorialism, and of course, supra-territorialism. A combination of these forces, namely triumph of capitalism, 
intensification of internationalization, technological explosion, and resultant deterritorialization, and increased supra-territorial activities delineates the distinctiveness of globalization. Therefore, it can be said that globalization is capitalism. However, capitalism is not globalization. Globalization is internationalization. However, internationalization is not globalization. Globalization is technological explosion. However, technological explosion is not globalization. Globalization is deterritorialization. However, deterritorialization is not globalization. And finally, globalization is supra-territorialism. However, supra-territorialism is not globalization. Thank you. Therefore, deterritorialism and finally globalization is supra-territorialism. However, supra-territorialism is not globalization. Since globalization represents all others, why all others do not fully represent globalization, its distinctiveness is delineated. Renato Reguero was therefore not too incorrect to proclaim that globalization is a reality which overwhelms all others. Other domains within which current globalization can be distinguished from other economic prodigies are within the realm of a rising speculative movement of funds, astronomic increases in international trade, explosive international amalgamation and acquisition, transnationalization of production, advanced sophisticated technological innovation, dominance of transnational corporations, global fragmentation and regionalization, and of course within the realm of global competition. For one thing, speculative capital has a negative effect on job creation, owing to the fact that investors are not enthusiastic about long-term capital investment, such as construction of productive outlets, namely factories, schools, hospitals, and so on. Therefore, a casino economy of speculation within a global financial system was volatile to exchange and interest rate. The state of affairs resulted in widespread economic crisis. As witnessed in the 1994-95 Mexican peso crisis, the 1997-98 Southeast Asian economic crisis, and to an extent the current 2007 today global economic meltdown with adverse consequences on human resources. The current meltdown has resulted in the worst recession ever witnessed and has adversely impacted on international trade in spite of the fact that previous increases in profitable international trade owing to pervasive trade liberalization and border porosity within a transnational dispensation could not produce any positive result in the area of job creation. Moreover, astronomic international trade reflected an, equal, an unequal combat between the North and some certain economies. Hence, major governments, particularly in the South, have attempted to attract FDI, which is foreign direct investment, through the encouragement of major and acquisitions activities, which has become a strategy for corporate competitive survival within a global economy. However,
However, it can be argued that a majority of the M1A activities were achieved at the expense of the majority of humankind, namely workers, through rigorous re-engineering. Most organizations fail to place the interests of workers at heart when considering M1A, when considering M1A, when considering MO and A, since corporate interest was at the forefront of most of the agendas. MO and A amounts to the liquidation of previously existing organizations and the reconstitution of a new corporate entity, a process which is characterized by endemic retrenchment and transnationalization of production. Transnationalization of production is the process of subcontracting certain production activities to low-wage countries in order to take advantage of the international division of labor in order to withstand putative global competition. Despite the fact that these forms of jobs from advanced countries are valuable to workers in the poor countries, most of the jobs do not arrive in poor countries in the same packages that they left in rich countries. This amounted to a reduction in the aggregate value of responsibility towards global workers by global business, which is a precursor of low consumer spending across the globe. Current low consumer spending has resulted in stagnant growth or in standard inventory and sluggish growth, which resonates the wise words of former American President John F. Kennedy in 1962 where he said, consumers by definition include us all. They are the largest economic group affected and affected by almost every public and private decision, but they are the only important groups whose views are often not heard. However, it should be remembered, we have to keep it in mind that to disregard human potential is to commit productivity suicide. Moreover, the concentration of economic power in few hands within the global economy has resulted in monopoly capitalist tendencies and a mismanagement of the world resources as the current global economic crisis illustrates. At this junction, it will be worthwhile to pause and reflect on labor utilization in the era of capitalist globalization. Ukwere points out that it was marked by a growing downward spiral on wages and working conditions, deliberate job destruction and losses, a race to the bottom in labor standards, unrelenting corporate measures and acquisition, flexibilization and casualization of employment relationship, poor training, stroke expenditure on workers, huge expenditure on advertisement and sales promotion, Restricted labor mobility, labor exploitation and abuse in the export processing zones, abusive labor relationship, industrial action, violent protests and employee killings, increasing crime, congested jail, forced labor and child labor, footloose speculative capital, rapid technological change with adverse impact on workers, erosion of labor unions' powers, and demotion of industrial democracy. It is important to note that technological advancement within the global village 
have accelerated the number of visual corporations. Current visual corporations promise a reduction of the labor force as more and more purchases can be electronically manipulated. In addition, more corporations are empowered to send their data processing to any part of the world that can do the work at a cheaper rate. This is arguably the same story of the race to the bottom concept, which is detrimental to global workers as they underbid themselves. Furthermore, the visual corporation does not promote industrial democracy as it deals with invisible workers. Also, it does not promote unionism, which is an essential ingredient for collective bargaining and industrial amity. The absence of workers' representative, and indeed industrial democracy, has laid a solid foundation for labor exploitation, the outcome of which is endemic unemployment, inequality, and poverty in the era of globalization. The logic of capitalist globalization seem to have exacerbated the level of global unemployment. In recent times, top managers seem to have been encouraged to destroy jobs. For example, when a French branch of IBM retrenched 122,000 workers and reduced the total wage costs by a third in an era of globalization, the management board rewarded those directors that were in charge of downsizing with non-pay related bonuses of 5.8 million each. Another notable example was in 1990 when Steve Rose, CEO of Time Warner, was paid the highest corporate executive salary of 78.2 million. And this occurred in the same year, that, in the same year when he retrenched 605 employees of Time Warner. The payment of Steve Rose would have covered the salaries of all discharged workers for two and a half years. Hence, an increasing number of, of people have been added to global unemployment figures. More and more individuals are now moving from place to place in search of jobs which might have evaporated owing to automation and managerial actions or move to other regions in order to take advantage of favorable business climates and government concessions, namely cheap labor, less environmental laws, and tax holidays. The rising trend in unemployment within the global economy can be seen from the fact that since the year 2000, European countries have witnessed a massive increase in unemployment. The level of unemployment in the Eurozone rose to 12.3% in 2013. For example, unemployment in France, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, and Greece amounted to 11%, 14.2%, 17.5%, 26.7%, and 27.2% respectively. In a few years to come, many parts of Europe may likely assume top world country status. Even in Sweden, which had previously maintained a low level of joblessness, the rate of unemployment increased rapidly from 1.5% in 1990 to about 8.8% in 2013. In the UK, anxiety disorders 
seem to have infiltrated workplaces as more than one in ten workers fear that the economic meltdown could cost them their jobs. Unemployment in the UK now stands at 7.9%. Interestingly, Austria and Germany have maintained some level of stability at 4.7% and 5.3% in terms of employment rates, respectively. This could be attributed to their government effective policies. Perhaps there is a need for other countries to find out what they are both doing right. In the USA, about 12.2 million people are unemployed. Recently, the public sector shared about 13,000 jobs, while the rate of unemployment stands at 7.8%. It is indeed true that particularly during the last two or more decades, the labor market in developed economies have exhibited unfavorable tendencies when compared to previous decades which were known as the golden age. In terms of Africa, within a capitalist global system, the situation is acute. According to the International Labour Organization, about 11.7% of sub-Saharan African youths are unemployed. The youth unemployment rate in North Africa is high at 23.7%. Why about 46.9% of African youths are inactive. In South Africa, for example, several female job seekers have often become victims of violent crimes owing to joblessness in the country. At a figure of 25.2%, more than a quarter of South African workers are currently jobless. Already about 4.6 million South Africans have become jobless in the first quarter of 2013. More than 66,000 jobs were lost in the trading sector during the last quarter alone. Of the 50 million South Africans, 2.3 million have become discouraged job seekers, and more than 12 million are economically inactive. Among the unemployed, 57.4% has less than secondary education, 49.1% are female, and 70.7% are between the age of 15 and 35 years. The discontentment among workers owing to job losses and poor working condition is a reflection of the growing number of industrial unrest, incidents, weakness in South Africa in recent times. Violent industrial action could be the outcome of poor industrial relations in an era of capitalist globalization. For example, South Africa has witnessed several violent industrial action incidents from 2006 onwards, culminating in the recent industrial action at Marikana in 2012, which led to the massacre of more than 34 mining workers by the South African police services. It should be recalled that around 2006-7, the South African police services had contemplated engaging in industrial action if they applied remain unchanged. One wonders what would have happened in South Africa if such a strike was allowed to was allowed to ensue. South Africa is not the only case where the police force had, had thought of the idea to strike. Even the Nigerian police force, one of the poorest paid police forces in the world, had contemplated industrial action but later backed down, realizing full well what Nigeria would have turned into 
before the strike was over. Still on Nigeria, globalization ecstasy seemed to have made a previous seem to have made a particular previous administration to assert that it is not the responsibility of the government to create jobs. However, ideally, job creation is one of the crucial roles of the government. In other words, individuals with specific skills may become jobless when there is paucity of opportunity within a given society. For example, in Nigeria, the textile industry, which was the largest employer of labor, has folded. The textile companies, which totaled about 145 in the 1980s, have created millions of jobs for people. However, capitalist globalization, which some refer to as financialization, seems to have made the financial sector more buoyant than the productive sectors in Nigeria. Conversely, the financial sector has, over the years, been able to create only about 300,000 jobs, of which more than 50% are casual employment jobs. This is quite meager when compared to the jobs that were previously created through the productive sector. Therefore, in an economy where the financial sector is more buoyant than the productive sector, there is bound to be problems owing to the vacuum which emanates from the economic mismatch. Entrepreneurial initiative in Nigeria has not been properly funded by government, mostly because global logic seems to have taught the nation's leadership that governments do not interfere with the economy or job creation. Consequently, about 54.4% of the nation's citizens go to bed hungry every night. In the same gloomy picture, over 5 million Nigerian youths are estimated to be unemployed. Unemployment has reached a critical height in Nigeria, namely 23.9%. The everyday sight of the growing armies of unemployed youths who roam the street with despair written all over their faces attests to the gravity of the job market situation. In the absence of any national security system to cater for the jobless, more people, more people will turn to crime. Indeed, there is a global relationship between retrenchment, unemployment, and crime. Rising unemployment increases the number of idle persons and hence the number of criminals. As the crime rate increases in any society, investors become increasingly less confident. Decreased economic growth lead to higher level of unemployment. Why the unemployed, unable to make a living, turn to crime? It can therefore be asserted that as unemployment decreases, the crime rate will decrease. But the problem lies with fueling the necessary economic growth while crime prevails. Crime affects every aspect of society and business. Therefore, companies which are quick to retrench workers without considering the social effect that it may have, may be acting irresponsibly and within the end suffer the consequences of increased crime and economic recession. While evidence is not definitive, several studies of criminal behaviors within a capitalist dispensation have linked it to inequality, which points to the fact that high rates of crime are associated 
with falling incomes. In fact, unemployment could be risen while one finds university graduate criminals presently in Nigeria. These are able-bodied persons who are willing to work after attending university for years and engaging in a year of national service, but are without jobs. Even some previously employed graduates may have to face the wind of competition which capitalist global forces have unleashed. And it seems that the only way for corporations to respond to these putative forces is mainly through further retrenchment and unemployment. Hence, frustration has led use to crime. Presently, about 90% of arrested criminals state that a main reason why they engage in crime is hunger. In addition, the growing number of graduates that are unemployed have increased the rate of some sophisticated crimes such as money laundering, drug trafficking, human trafficking, bank and lottery fraud, popularly known as 419 amongst Nigerians and 420 amongst Indians, child labor, female trafficking, and recently terrorism, which include kidnapping, suicide bombing, and of course, raping. In Kenya, the labor-intensive horticultural industry, which employed an estimate, estimated 30 million people, suffered a 35% drop in the export of flour and has cut around 1,200 jobs in 2007. In Zambia, 8,100 of the 30,000 workers in the mining sector lost their job in 2008, while further increases in unemployment are anticipated. In the Katanga province of the Democratic Republic of Congo, 60% of enterprises have closed down and about 300,000 people have been laid off. The volume of rubber export from Liberia decreases from 135,000 tons in 2007 to 88,000 tons in 2008, which also exacerbated the unemployment situation in that country. The Arab Spring in 2011 it's a reflection that youth unemployment should be at the heart of a nation's growth agenda. Youth unemployment stroke inactivity was able to bring down authoritarian regimes in Tunisia and Egypt and should also be recognized as a threat to democracies in South Africa and Ghana. For example, in Ghana, unemployed youth have, have resorted to barricading government offices and making demands on politicians. In Egypt, thousands of men have lost their life while trying to cross illegally into fortress Europe. Some say from the Egyptian Mediterranean coast aboard fishing boats that are operated by smugglers. Many of them travel first to Libya before attempting the perilous crossing to Italy. The main reason why they undertake so dangerous and excruciating journey are the same which drive illegal migrants from Nigeria Togo, Ivory Coast, Republic of Benin, Congo DRC, Zimbabwe, and other African countries, namely unemployment, inequality, poverty, and lack of opportunities. The right to gainful employment was indeed one of the fundamental rights of every individual, which is enshrined by the UN Charter of Human Rights as far back as 1945. However, it is a pity that the current global capitalist logic 
have exacerbated the erosion of this fundamental right of the working person and expanded the level of inequality in societies. The disparity between the global rich and the poor continue to expand. According to Oxfam, the annual income of the 100 richest individuals is enough to end global poverty four times over. In a world of about 6.7 billion people, 80% live on less than $10 per day. 5% of global income is generated by the poorest 40% of the world population. Why conversely, the wealthiest 20% of the population generates 75% of the world's income. By the late 1990s, the richest 20% of the world population enjoyed 86% of the world GDP, while the poorest 20% own a mere 1%. The income of the wealthiest tenth of the world's household is more than 80 times the purchasing power of the poorest tenth. This disparity is a product. This disparity is a product of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. A trend which affects developed countries but, but is severe among developing nations. With last section of the population being in Sub-Saharan Africa, East and South Asia, Latin America, while the post-communist states are forced even further into abject poverty. Leod notes that half of the global population, roughly 30 billion people, live in abject poverty. Nearly half of this, 1.2 billion in 2000, live in utter destitution on less than $1 a day in danger of death by starvation or related diseases. Access to safe drinking water is unknown to 1 billion people. 2.4 billion people have no adequate sanitation. The consequences of this poverty are manifested, are manifested in the form of increasing early mortality, diseases, malnutrition, prostitution, child labor, displacement and forced migration, the violence of social breakdown, state social control, and frictional war, acute risks and uncertainty, environmental degradation and vulnerability, as well as loss of existential material security. The top 500 richest people currently own 1.54 trillion, which is more than the entire GDP of Africa. It is ironic that Africa has one of the world's richest concentrations of minerals and precious metals, yet some 30 million of its people live on less than $1 a day. In the case of Africa, inequality is worse than one growth, which creates wealth, is not accompanied by decent jobs. The sort of growth that distributes wealth, fosters consumption, and drives investment. A study by the UN Economic Commission for Africa reveals that focusing on economic growth alone might not be the best way to have poverty by 2015. The study further states that a crucial factor in the equation is income inequality. Because it is not so much the growth figure themselves that matter, but the fact that economic growth is intricately linked to unequal income. In fact, poverty reduction or escalation is determined by levels of inequality in society. Thus, even if there is growth in a country, the way that income is distributed is vital. Nevertheless, in many African countries, 
Growth in national income rarely trickles down to the poor workers. In South Africa, for instance, more than 22 million people live on average on less than 144 rand, about $15 per month. The poorest 40% citizens remain overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly blacks, female and rural. 60% of female-headed households are poor versus 31% of male-headed households. Two out of three children live in poverty in South Africa, which renders South Africa one of the most unequal societies on earth. In Nigeria, where some politicians earn more than the UN president, more than the US president, workers are comparing their difficult conditions with the affluence of the elite members of their society. Another case in point is Burkina Faso, where thousands of trade unions shut down economic activities four times in 2005 through a series of national protests over low salary, high prices, lost job, inadequate social benefit, benefit. One of the union's leaders, Bakare Molango, decried workers' rampant pauperization as opposed to the scandalous and ostentatious lifestyle of high government officials. According to Balema, the gap between the rich and the poor is widening ever more. Such a situation is all the more insupportable. In the midst of, a re of relatively high economic growth, growth rates, which have been mainly for the rich, the workers have a right to their share of the national wealth, which according to the government grew in 2005 by 7%. Another commentator added, Burkina is running this risk of a social explosion of unpredictable consequences. The danger are all greater because endemic poverty exist alongside visible signs of wealth. Some take a plane to get treated for hay fever, while others die because they cannot afford malaria treatment. Elsewhere in Africa, similar development is also instigating growing concerns. For example, in Senegal, a boom in the housing construction in Dakar has led to the emergence of middle class. Meanwhile, instability and poverty are gaining grants at the other end of the social class. NIS traced income inequality in South Africa to a lack of skill and education by certain sections of the labor force. She therefore advises that if education is the source of high income inequality in South Africa, the best way to address this issue is to make a concerted effort to increase quantity and quality of schooling among all South Africans. Inequality has indeed widened in Africa with a tiny section of the population getting richer while a greater number of people are forced into abject poverty. Here we echoes the words of wisdom of our icon, Nelson Mandela. Combating inequality is an ethical and moral imperative. Massive poverty and obscene inequality is such a terrible scourge of our times. Times in which the world boasts breathtaking advances in science, technology, industry, and wealth accumulation that they have to rank alongside slavery and apartheid as social evils. And in one of my paper, I try actually to explicate to people that 
Apartheid is not just the apartheid that existed in South Africa before the dawn of uh, democracy in South Africa. Apartheid is everywhere. The segregation between the rich and the poor is worse than apartheid. The segregation in society, if you go to America, there are gated and uh, fenced estates where they cannot actually mingle with the downtrodden. That is more than apartheid. So let us just keep that in our minds. According to the UN Undersecretary General for Economic and Social Affairs, Josie Antonio Ocampo, ignoring inequality in the pursuit of development is perilous. Focusing exclusively on economic growth and income generation as a development strategy is ineffective, as it leads to the accumulation of wealth by a few and deepens the poverty of the many. Failure to address inequalities means that communities, countries, regions remain vulnerable to social, political, and economic upheaval. In fact, extreme wealth in the midst of inequality is economically inefficient, politically corrosive, socially divisive, and environmentally destructive. More information on inequality can be obtained from the table one there for your personal reflection. Indeed, increases in income inequality and poverty in the period in the in the poorest developing countries over the past decades can be attributed to globalization. Bonding and trafficking laborers owing to restriction of, on global labor mobility are locked into livelihoods that provide no opportunity to shift from poverty. Chronically poor people are found, are found across the world, while the largest number live in South Asia. However, the highest incident of chronic poverty is in Sub-Saharan Africa, where more than 40% live on less than $1 per day. East Asia also has a significant number of chronically poor people, namely between 55 to 85 million, who live mainly in China. Considering the situation, Ukwere and Slavad posit, most of the incident increasing the rate of poverty around the world today cannot be attributed to nature but to man and the selfish capitalist institutions created by man. Almost half of the more than 6 billion people in the world are poor. More than 8 million people die each year because they are too poor to stay alive. More than, while more than 1 billion lives are in danger because they lack food while living in a world of abundance. In a shocking report on human poverty, the UNDP recorded the income or consumption share of the poorest 20% of the population in 14 countries across four continents. Based on this figure, people in the poorest quantum in Brazil, who share merely 2.5% of its total income, appear to be affected the worst. Comparable figure for South Africa is 2.9%, Russia 4.2%, and Thailand 5.6%. In addition, the UNDP states that economic growth cannot be accelerated enough to overcome the handicap of too much income directed to the rich. Income does not trickle down. It only circulates among the allied groups. Data from 85 third world countries, including Africa, reveal a wide range of deprivation among them. For example, 64.7% 
of the population in Niger live in severe poverty during the late 1990s. In general, more than one third of the people in Africa live in extreme poverty. Figuan below shows that the number of people in sub-Saharan Africa who live in absolute poverty has more than doubled within two decades. The number increased from 288 million in 1981 to 516 million in 2001. The situation in sub-Saharan Africa is severe. For example, up to 65% of Malawi's 13.1 million people live on less than a dollar per day, according to Malawian government statistics. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization has repeatedly, has repeatedly warned of catastrophic food shortages in many African countries. Currently, the average per capita calorie intake has not fallen below minimal nutritional standard. The FAO recently estimated that of African 750 million people, more than 270 million suffer from, from some form of malnutrition associated with inadequate food supplies. The food and global crisis is likely to fear incidences of poverty and vulnerability in poor countries such as Ethiopia, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Uganda, Botswana, Angola, Mozambique, and Tanzania. The situation could be worse in other parts of Africa, such as Congo, Burundi, Malawi, and Comoros. Despite the fact that most poverty in Africa are attributed to drought, famine, internal strife, wars, and HIV stroke AIDS, it must be stated here again that capitalist globalization has not spread the benefit of increased efficiency and openness that accompanied it more evenly and equitably among individuals and nations. Therefore, within the domain of global unemployment, inequality, and poverty in the era of globalization, renewed problems of global competition, job termination, wage reduction, labor immobility, and technological displacement of workers have accelerated the rate of global unemployment, the corollary of which is endemic inequality and poverty. Mr. Chair, in conclusion, I would like to say that there could be other better global alternatives than the current single capitalist triumphant orthodoxy. This particular view is reinforced by recurring protests and confrontations around the world owing to increasing social and economic exclusion exclusion of a majority of the people from the benefit of globalization. Hence, based on the current deplorable social and economic situation, it would be erroneous to claim that all aspects of socialism is dead and buried, because to bury socialism, to bury socialism in its entirety would be to bury unionism. To better socialism would be to better industrial democracy and economic empowerment. To better socialism would be to better government regulation and interventions. To better socialism would be to better harmonious industrial relations. To better socialism would be to better all alternative to the current world of exploitation, poverty, inequality, squalor, 
and diseases, unnecessary deaths, and hopelessness. It is true that socialism has failed. However, capitalism has failed woefully. Hence, the hope that is left is a renaissance of positive aspect of socialism in order to resuscitate capitalism. Therefore, a complementary and comprehensive ideological order is urgently required within the current global crisis, because it is only determined government action which is orchestrated by strong sense of true nationalism that can limit the worst effect of the current global economic meltdown. In concordance with the author's view, Turner states that the belief of capitalism and economic development help generate the ideas as well as the prosperity which characterize the developed world today. But en route, they generated the inequality and insecurity which almost blew up the post facto progressive path. But capitalism was only saved by the emergence of the late 19th and 20th century of a countervailing force, which many capitalists oppose. They stayed powerful enough to redistribute economic opportunities and to provide collective goods and intellectually competent enough to absorb and apply Keynes intellectual revolution. A state which was the product of idea and political will rather than, rather than a natural and automatic product of capitalist system itself. Therefore, the state cannot continue to be a passive onlooker amidst economic mismanagement and industrial cacophony. Because humans in search of peace and progress have surrendered their sovereign identity to the state. The state is indeed a fine product of human civilization and should be the authority of supreme power, the actual sovereign who should formulate and execute the will of the people while stimulating private initiative towards the full actualization of capitalist socialism. This will ensure and end to a single orthodoxy, namely capitalist globalism. Thank you for listening. Distinguished guests, already mentioned by Professor Maluluka Oleka, I'll get to the pronunciation within weeks, all right, I promise. Um, especially Gladys, Helen, Wilfred, Junior, William is out, baby is out. Um, indeed, a prestigious a moment, occasion. Thank you for everybody being here. I wonder, I wish I could ask uh, Wilfred himself what one could say possibly after a speech like this. Well researched and evidently you know something about the topic. 
Now, I at first wondered, now, why did Wilfred ask me to respond to a speech like this? And one can only get to one of two reasons, as far as I'm concerned. The one is that, that he has something very seriously against me. <laughs> the other one being that uh, we might just have a good relationship and be good friends. And without consultation and following my own head, I decided on the latter. <laughs> and I will always recall, I think if my memory is correct, in January 2011, you joined us. I went to his office. I had other intentions, but I looked him in the face and I said, Kunjane Wilfred, who hands are when I'm on you? When a you know, and he got a look on his face. And, well, he got up from his desk and he looked rather aggressive. And he started laughing. And ever since, whenever I get to his office, we have this uh, little conversation. But he has now the audacity to reply in some sort of foreign French, somewhere from mid-Africa, in a very strange dialect. So I can only gather from this that our relationship has grown simply because we don't understand one another. <laughs> Wilfred, this is a remarkable occasion. And I wish to congratulate you on behalf of colleagues, friends, Everybody that's here, well done. This is a milestone in the life of an academic, beyond all doubt. Caution. I want to add on to what was said right in the beginning. To become a renowned, acknowledged, worldwide researcher you've now started on the starting line so I would like to wish you the very best on this road and something really coming from my heart and I know the colleagues in the department feel likewise We appreciate and we admire your passion, your energy, that vibe, that special vibe in that Corridor 3, um, your dedication, your commitment, your loyalty, and above all, your work ethic. And you know, if I'm correct, 
And it ties up with what the executive dean said. I think you've published 71 articles from 2011. I don't know what you did this morning. You have your wife with you. Uh, but let's say, let's stick to the 71. And with the 14 awards that you've received, it is simply a remarkable achievement. Thank you for your input. Thank you for coming to this wonderful university and this wonderful department. And we trust that that value add will continue. But there's another side to it. And Gladys, maybe you can afterwards just confirm. There's a softer human side to, to Wilfred. And what amazes me most, be it a birthday, be it joy in the department, be it a, a, a newly born, be it, a, be it a promotion, any achievement or sadness or illness, you can go to that email the following morning and Wilfred is the first to reply. Thank you for that as well. Wilfred, it's, it's very difficult getting into this, but if you agree with what I say, and if it does make sense to you, I would like to beg you tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock in the office, let's get an article on what I have to say. All right. Uh, be, before tea time, eh? If that is possible. And this is what I have to say about uh, the speech. And it's very short and to the point. Uh, and I decided not to repeat it in Zulu. Stick to plain, simple English. And I can only say, I was so highly intoxicated by your exuberant verbosity. <laughs> If you really want English, then I'll give it to you, all right? I want it in Afrikaans. In outlining the essence of globalization, you managed to give us a better understanding of the complexities thereof. The manner in which you defined and contextualized globalization in terms of the capitalist economic system was extremely well argued and substantial. Although capitalism was celebrated globally and generally accepted as the best and only option, and in your own words, left unchallenged, you clearly indicated and I will never forget the list of examples all over the globe that capitalism demoted the growth of global prosperity. 
You furthermore pointed to the failure of a simple global capitalist economic system. Failing to address the problems and challenges of today. Namely unemployment, inequality, oppression, poverty. And your table, I can't recall the page, but your table of examples in this regard was quite impressive and beyond all doubt proof of thorough research and investigation. Well done. In a desperate search for solving these problems of mankind, it is evident that if socialism has failed, capitalism has failed woefully. Finally, you left us with much to think about when you claim that there is a possible solution in a renaissance of the positive aspects of socialism in order to resuscitate capitalism. In this renaissance, you emphasized the renewed role of the state where it can no longer be a passive onlooker of economic management. Wilfred, congratulations my friend. Well done with this achievement. And I hope a night, an evening with your loved ones, with colleagues and friends that you will never forget. And indeed, the Department of Industrial Psychology and People Management and the Faculty of Management and UJ, we are all extremely proud of you. And we wish you and your family the very best. Thank you. I want to add my word of congratulations to you and to say that I feel extremely proud um, to be here today, extremely proud of uh, the University of Johannesburg, extremely proud of the Department uh, of Industrial uh, Psychology and Human Management, extremely proud of the Dean Dom of uh, Professor Van Lille. Um, and, 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 and really excited to listen to such erudition uh, as you gave us. You saw no one was sleeping, you know, and, and I'm sure that some people had no clue what you were talking about. <laughs> uh, but they were all awake, uh, fascinated uh, with what you had to say to us. Uh, Professor Kutsia, thank you very much for the for the humorous manner in which you responded uh, to this uh, very, very substantive and serious lecture uh, that we received. I think the combination of your, of your humor and the, 
seriousness with which uh, the lecture was given uh, was just what we needed. As a fellow scholar um, and a fellow uh, NRF-rated researcher, a fellow supervisor of students, a fellow professor, uh, on behalf of our peers and fellow scholars at uh, UJ and beyond, and on behalf of the University of Johannesburg Management, I not only congratulate you on your professorship, but warmly welcome you to the community of scholars. And I invite you to do the scholarly dance and not to stop dancing. And ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to unleash the newest professor, our newest release. <laughs> in